The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. Good. And we will hold you accountable for that, Mr. Attorney General. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, this week, this month, this year, and forever. Uh, the uh, Hi, Des. Hi. The New York Times had it right, I think, in their editorial board's op-ed um, on New Year's Day that uh, we shared part of earlier this week. Uh, they had it right, if only in their headline for the piece. Quote, every day is January 6th now. Nailed it. Uh, it certainly is. I At this point, I see nothing more important between now and the November midterms and now and the 2024 presidential election than protecting and, in fact, saving our democracy from the authoritarian forces who now have it squarely under attack. And make no mistake, they do. And yes, that keeps in mind the importance of things like climate change. And, you know, saving human civilization from the ravages of our planet, because if we can't save American democracy, the chances of saving our planet may be close to zero. Yeah, American democracy is now that important to save and to defend from the forces of fascism that now threaten all of us can't save this nation we can't save this planet so yeah every day is january 6th now especially this week the anniversary of that horrible attack on our u.s capitol that day in donald trump's last desperate attempt to steal the 2020 presidential election no matter how many would die that day 
and in the days after, including law enforcement officers who lost their lives and more than 140 of them who were injured, some of them critically so. Uh, Luckily, if that's the right word, uh, this has actually been our beat. And yes, our warning for many years now as we head into our uh, 19th year, I think, at bradblog.com later this month. Nearly two decades of warning of the fragility of our democracy, the need for safeguards and reform and public oversight and the increasing threat that American democracy now faces now more than at any time I recall in those two decades. Yes. And sadly, I I have to agree with you on that. It seems like everything is accelerating to a very, very dangerous conclusion if we are not able to move swiftly enough and decisively enough to save it. It's not like we didn't know we weren't headed here. This is what we've been trying to warn. Well, now we're here, or almost. Uh, on, on January 6th last year, uh, as the attack on the Capitol and, and, yes, the violent assault on American democracy, as that was underway, we were joined by our old friend Will Bunch, national correspondent and columnist at Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, from the very seat of American democracy, I should add, in fact. Uh, he will join us once again uh, shortly for reflections and lessons learned, if there are any to be had. And I will share some of Attorney General Merrick Garland's remarks. You heard some of them at the top of the show there. Uh, his remarks at the DOJ on Wednesday commemorating the one-year anniversary of January 6th in which I I think he offered some very, very hopeful words, particularly for those of us who have been critical of his lack of accountability brought to date to Donald Trump and his criminal cronies. And speaking of which, the disgraced, twice impeached, failed loser of a former president was set to have his own media event on Thursday, January 6th. But for some reason, Maybe because he's also a coward, uh, he has suddenly thought better to, better of it. Uh, as The Washington Post reported late last night, as the news broke, former President Donald Trump has canceled the news conference that he planned to hold on January 6th. In a statement by his Save America PAC, Trump blamed the media and the bipartisan congressional committee that is investigating the attack. Quote, and mind you, this is a grown man and a former president of the United States writing and publishing these words, quote, in light of the total bias and dishonesty of the January 6th unselect committee of Democrats, two failed Republicans and the fake news media, I am canceling the January 6th press conference at Mar-a-Lago on Thursday and instead will discuss many of those important topics at my rally on Saturday, January 15th in Arizona. It will be a big crowd. Now, according to a person uh, familiar with the matter, uh, the uh, Washington Post reports that Trump wanted to make a scene and deride reporters at the event, but had been told repeatedly by his advisors that it could be the kind of coverage that he doesn't want. On January 6th, Trump also did not know exactly what he wanted his message to be, apparently, and his team was taken aback by how many reporters were planning on attending, according to this person. Oh, so that's why it's the media's fault? They plan to report it? They plan to cover it. Wow. Uh, A Trump advisor uh, said it's going to be awful, awful press. Uh, He added, or she added, that Trump had originally announced the news conference on a lark and without a plan in place. What a shock. That does not sound like him. 
Uh, in the statement, he went on to uh, perpetuate the uh, debunked claims that the 2020 election was stolen, the still false evidence-free allegations that, in fact, spurred many of his brain poison supporters to invade the Capitol in the first place on January 6th as Trump tried to steal the election from Joe Biden. Uh, Trump said, quote, this is the Democrats great cover up committee and the media is complicit. He added, why is the primary reason for the people coming to Washington, D.C., which is the fraud of the 2020 presidential election, not the primary topic of the unselect committee's investigation. Don't know if you're able to follow that. <laughs> I had a hard time with that one. <laughs> yeah, but that's go figure. Uh, adding this was indeed the crime of the century. Uh, his cancellation comes after some Senate Republicans had voiced unease about his plans for a news conference on the anniversary of the attack. And it came just hours after a letter from the House Unselect Committee the uh, House Select Committee, uh, a letter that was made public and sent to Fox News's Sean Hannity, asking him to come on in and speak voluntarily with the committee about his texts and his conversations with both Trump and members of his staff, like Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, in the days before and during and after January 6th, as we noted very briefly as the news broke at the very end of yesterday's broadcast. Now, we may have to circle back to this. Uh, to some of the details in the future, uh, because I want to get to some of Merrick Garland's remarks on the status of the January 6th investigations. And I've got Will Bunch standing by shortly. But uh, via CNN, the Fox News host Sean Hannity was concerned about Trump's strategy and his conduct before, during and after the attack on the Capitol, according to this letter that was sent to him on Tuesday by the committee. Uh, noting that they had received, quote, dozens of his text messages to and from former Trump White House chief of staff Meadows that indicate that he had, quote, advanced knowledge regarding President Trump's and his legal team's planning for January 6th. The committee said it has text messages from Hannity pushing back on the plan to urge Congress to challenge the certification of the election and urging Trump instead to prepare for his departure from office. Hannity apparently did not want him to do uh, what they were all pushing to do. On January 5, he wrote he was very worried about the next 48 hours. The committee asks Hannity in the letter why he was so concerned. What did he know that made him so worried after apparently speaking himself to the then president? They also the committee also cited a separate conversation at the end of December in which Hannity um Wrote to, after which uh, Hannity wrote to Meadows, quote, we can't lose the entire White House counsel's office. I do not see January 6th happening the way he is being told after the 6th. He should announce uh, will he will lead the nationwide effort to reform voting integrity because, you know, the voters are the problem in <laughs> Fox Newsland. Uh, he should, quote, go to Florida and watch Joe, Joe Biden, mess up daily, stay engaged when he speaks. People will listen. The committee said it appeared that Hannity has, quote, detailed knowledge regarding President Trump's state of mind uh, and had engaged with him several times about his planning for January 6th. 
so, uh, you know, just normal stuff. There was this one a message from uh, January 10 that Hannity had sent to Meadows and to Ohio Republican Congressman Jim Jordan saying, guys, this was January 10th. So four days after the attack, guys, we have a clear path to land the plane in nine days. He can't mention the election again, ever. I did not have a good call with him today. And worse, I'm not sure what is left to do or say. Ideas? That's Sean Hannity writing to the chief of staff of the president of the United States and Congressman Jim Jordan. You know, normal stuff that a supposed journalist does uh, when dealing with the president. Or frankly, you know, any elected official as a dispassionate, fair and balanced, we report, you decide journalist. Am I right, Sean Hannity? The uh, committee has gone out of its way to say they don't want to talk about his politics. They don't want to talk about his broadcasts, his political views uh, or any candidates in office. They say at the same time, we have a solemn responsibility to investigate fully the facts and circumstances of these events in order to inform our legislative recommendations. Our nation cannot let anything like January 6th ever happen again. Thus, we write today to seek your voluntary cooperation on a specific and narrow range of factual questions. And I love the way that the Democratic chair, Benny Thompson, and the Republican vice chair, Liz Cheney, end the letter. They say, we have no doubt that you love our country and respect our Constitution. Now is the time to step forward and serve the interests of your country. So whose idea do you think it was to include that line at the end, uh, that appeal to his patriotism there? You think that was Thompson? Or? No, I think that's probably Liz Cheney. Yeah, I know. I agree. It's good to have a far right winger on the side of good instead of evil for a change. I will hope that Dems are uh, are learning from her. Uh, anyway, um, no doubt more on that in the days ahead. Let's take a quick break here. We're back with uh, some comments on the January 6th investigation at the DOJ from Attorney General Merrick Garland and then Will Bunch one year after January 6th. Now that every day is January 6th. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is The Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Okay, gonna hold you to that. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Gonna hold Attorney General Merrick Garland to that. On Wednesday, he vowed to hold accountable anyone, anyone who was responsible for last year's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, whether they were physically there or not. His remarks come as the Justice Department has faced increased pressure to focus more on the actions that may have inspired the thousands of pro-Trump rioters to storm the building. 
So far, the investigation into the attack on the Capitol is the largest in the Department of Justice's history. Garland detailed in his remarks the more than 700 people who have been arrested and 350 others that are still being sought by the FBI, including 250 of whom are accused of assaulting police officers. 250 still on the lam. He also detailed the serious assaults on law enforcement officers, describing in detail how officers were beaten and shocked with stun guns, including one who was beaten and shocked with a stun gun repeatedly until he had a heart attack. Another was foaming at the mouth and screaming for help as rioters crushed him between doors and bashed him in the head with his own weapon. Merrick then went on to ensure that while the department was bringing accountability for the lower level crimes first, the investigation by no means was going to end there. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. Because January 6 was an unprecedented attack on the seat of our democracy, we understand that there is broad public interest in our investigation. We understand that there are questions about how long the investigation will take and about what exactly we are doing. Our answer is, and will continue to be, the same answer we would give to, with respect to any ongoing investigation, as long as it takes and whatever it takes for justice to be done consistent with the facts and the law. I understand that this may not be the answer some are looking for. But we will and we must speak through our work. Anything else jeopardizes the viability of our investigations and the civil liberties of our citizens. Everyone in this room and on these screens is familiar with the way we conduct investigations, and particularly complex investigations. We build investigations by laying a foundation we resolve more straightforward cases first because they provide the evidentiary foundation for more complex cases. Investigating the more overt crimes generates linkages to less overt ones. Overt actors and the evidence they provide can lead us to others who may also have been involved. And that evidence can serve as a foundation for further investigative leads and techniques. In circumstances like those of January 6, a full accounting does not suddenly materialize. To ensure that all those criminally responsible are held accountable, we must collect the evidence. We follow the physical evidence. We follow the digital evidence. We follow the money. But most important, we follow the facts, not an agenda or an assumption the facts tell us where to go next. Over 40 years ago, in the wake of the Watergate scandal, the Justice Department concluded that the best way to ensure the Department's independence 
integrity, and fair application of our laws, and therefore the best way to ensure the health of our democracy is to have a set of norms to govern our work. The central norm is that in our criminal investigations, there cannot be different rules depending on one's political party or affiliation. There cannot be different rules for friends and foes. And there cannot be different rules for the powerful and the powerless. There is only one rule. We follow the facts and enforce the law in a way that respects the Constitution and protects civil liberties. We conduct every investigated investigation guided by the same norms, and we adhere to those norms even when, and especially when, the circumstances we face are not normal. Merrick Garland speaking at the DOJ uh, to employees on Wednesday in uh, remarks at the one-year anniversary of the unprecedented January 6th Donald Trump incited attack on the U.S. Capitol, saying that the department intends to follow the facts wherever they lead and that Garland uh, says uh, prosecutors are committed to holding all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law. He also went on to speak about the importance, once again, of assuring the right to vote and preventing the subversion of future elections in response to state legislatures across the country adopting measures to suppress the vote and make elections easier to overturn on a partisan whim and the necessity of congressional legislation to shore up that fight for American democracy, particularly in the light of the U.S. Supreme Court gutting the Voting Rights Act twice over the past decade, as Garland noted. Perhaps we'll share some of those comments as well on a future broadcast. But as I've got Will Bunch standing by, I'll tell you, the, his comments today made me feel a little bit better. Yeah. We'll see if uh, Will Bunch feels the same way. <laughs> Let's take a quick yeah. break. We'll come back with his reflections and and some of my own a year after January 6th, as Will Bunch just happened to be our lucky guest that day one year ago as the U.S. Capitol was under siege. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As we now arrive at the one-year anniversary of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, the Donald Trump incited last desperate pathetic attempt of his to steal the 2020 election by hurling thousands of his supporters 
against the gears of government in hopes of preventing the formal confirmation of Joe Biden's decisive electoral college victory, I decided to go back and look at what I wrote at bradblog.com on that awful day when posting the show that we did that day. Even as the assault was still under underway at that time and things, to say the least, were very murky as we went to air as to what was actually going on. As I wrote when posting the show that night uh, in what I described as a, quote, first draft of history. After weeks of false evidence free claims by the president of the United States that the election was stolen from him and after an hour of his endlessly repeated ginned up rhetoric on same at a so-called Save America rally in D.C. this morning and after Donald Trump's buffoon criminal attorney Rudy Giuliani called for, quote, trial by combat in his own remarks, the MAGA mob he summoned to D.C., stormed the U.S. Capitol building. The rioting came during a joint session of Congress amid GOP challenges to the formal, usually ceremonial electoral college affirmation of Joe Biden's decisive November victory. Both chambers of Congress were evacuated as Trump-supporting rioters broke windows and doors to enter the building. Both the House and Senate chambers, as well as lawmaker offices, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, were violently breached by the anti-American marauders. Vice President Pence, who had been presiding over the joint session, was ushered with several other key lawmakers to a secure location through underground tunnels beneath the Capitol. One of the insurrectionists is said to have been shot and killed. Questions remain. Lots of them as to why there was not a larger police presence around the Capitol before this perfectly predictable attempted coup. Among the things that we did not know as we went to air that day one year ago, of course, was that the attack would result in at least five deaths that day and ultimately injured about 140 members of law enforcement, some of them very, very seriously, several who subsequently took their own lives in the days that followed the unprecedented assault. My guest that day on the broadcast was Will Bunch, longtime national columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who we had actually booked to speak about a separate, if somewhat related-ish event the day before, when there was a bit of a coup inside the Pennsylvania State Senate where the GOP state Senate leader that day had actually orchestrated the removal of the state's Democratic lieutenant governor from his formal position as presiding officer of the Senate in order to prevent a Democratic state senator from being seated that day. As I say, related-ish to what would happen the following day on January 6th. An emboldened authoritarian right wing movement will, uh, you know, muscle their way into power with bad faith efforts and, yes, even violence if needed. We saw it in the uh, the uprising, if you will, in the state Senate in Pennsylvania one day and at the U.S. Capitol the next. But, of course, the still ongoing attack on the U.S. Capitol that following day by Trump's mob changed the trajectory of my conversation with Will Bunch that day, sort of changed it on the fly as we tried to make sense of what was actually going on in D.C. And now, a year later, 
Well, I thought it might be interesting to have Mr. Bunch back with us to see what, if anything, we have learned over the past year about what happened that day and how it may have affected or changed his outlook on what actually happened as we begin another critical election year. Joining us once again today is our friend Will Bunch, who has been following the fallout and investigations and developments ever since January 6th, along with his usual Philadelphia and Pennsylvania beat. Uh, Will Bunch, welcome back, sir. I've got a bunch of questions for you regarding January 6th, one year after the uh, attack, um, you know, through both bad faith and extra legal plotting and sheer brute force on the Capitol. I want to ask you about Attorney General Merrick Garland's remarks on Wednesday at the Department of Justice and more. But, Will, First, I need to thank you for joining us today because you told us last night that you just tested positive for COVID. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing really good. Yeah, yeah. Me and me and one billion of my uh, closest friends, Americans. You know, <laughs> I. Uh, it, it, uh, it's funny. I actually said on Twitter that uh, I always, I'm always somebody in life who strives to be a record-setting type person, and uh, so I was kind of flattered to be part of the uh, record-setting. Day for people testing positive for for COVID nineteen. Yeah, I mean, um, so congratulations. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, in, yeah. In the uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, in the uh, in the uh, area where I live, just west of Philly in the suburbs here, um, everybody's getting it. You know, mm. I mean, it's it, 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 it's almost it's almost at the point at this point where it's kind of noteworthy if you're the person who hasn't gotten it. Yeah, uh, well, and, and and I think as they're saying on TV, I think most of the cases are this Omicron variant, mm-hmm. and so um, luckily, because I have I have some underlying conditions, and I, mm. I've been very careful and very concerned, you know, these last nearly two years about not trying not to get mm-hmm. COVID, but um, with the Omicron, apparently, um, you know, the symptoms were never that, that serious. I never had the, the breathing problems that some people mm-hmm. have encountered, just a, a cough, which, you know, is unpleasant. Nobody likes having a cough or a runny nose, or um, fatigue, which is to me is really kind of the worst symptom, but, you know, it's fairly mild, and it's been, it's been, I guess, five days now since the first symptoms, and, and so it's uh, mostly diminished, you know, so... Uh, well, and but, to be uh, clear, well... But, but of course, yeah, of course, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, triple vaccinated with the booster and everything, mm-hmm. uh, always, uh, unless the few occasions where I go out to dine, but otherwise always wear a mask in, like, every indoor public place, and, uh, you know, I still got it. So, so uh, I, I just want to be clear, when, when we heard that you had tested positive, we tried to give you a way out of this interview from today, but you wanted to join us anyway, correct? I just want to make sure people don't think I've made you show up while you've got, while you're sick with COVID. Oh, absolutely, and what a, what a, what a one-year anniversary, kind of adult, you know, anniversary of January 6th, but also the one-year anniversary of that crazy interview. Interview that you and I had. Yep. Yeah, you know, I'll never. Excuse me. I do have a, mm-hmm. have a bit of a scratchy throat, right? So, uh, yeah, the one year inter- uh, one year anniversary of that interview. I'll never forget you and I talking, and it, it was like about three or four in the afternoon. Uh-huh. You know, East Coast time, and uh, try, trying to make sense of all of it, and uh, it was crazy. And you know, I mean, honestly, it's taken a full year, and it's taken some really. I think diligent, praiseworthy work from this January 6th uh, committee in the mm-hmm. House to bring into focus some of what we saw happening that day that we didn't 
fully understand in real time. That I think, you know, things that we're starting to understand better now, what what the goals were and, and who was behind what and, and why. We've, we've really learned so much in the last 12 months. Yeah, and that's sort of where I want to jump in because, you know, yeah. a year later... You know what? What do you think you understand now, if anything, that that you may not have fully appreciated that day as the as the insurrection was underway, as we were trying to make sense of it, as you said in real time, on that day's broadcast a year later. What what is at least clearer for you today, if anything, than than a year ago? Well, here in, you know this is this is my theory basically of what was actually going on and what in the minds of, of the Trump insiders, what they thought was going to happen and what they were planning for, which didn't happen and, and, and possibly averted a disaster, is, you know, when I say there were things that happened that day that just seemed to make no sense, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know why, why was the Capitol so lightly defended, you know, especially in a society where, you know, mm-hmm. we usually send riot cops to, you know, animal rights protests, right? right you know, exactly, and, and, yeah. You know, and, or whatever, and here's the here's the capital so lightly defended. Uh, why? And, 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 and this is a, this is a really big question that is so central. Is uh, why why didn't the DC National Guard respond to this to this chaos mm-hmm. at the Capitol? You know, we we know that city officials with with DC were frantically on the phone trying to get the Pentagon and trying to get people at the National Guard to respond, and they, and they didn't do that, and, and why didn't they, you know? And do you and, feel and, that and, we, well, do you feel that we uh, know those answers a year later think, with I any more clarity? I think, a, I think there's a theory that explains it, which I'm about to, you know, uh-huh. I'll, try, I'll try and be quick, because I know we want to touch on a lot of things, but I, I, I mean, basically, I've made this argument that there was a dog that didn't bark on January 6th, and that is a lot of the, set, a lot of the setup in, in the planning by Trump's diabolical inner circle anticipated one thing which is that the people who were showing up to protest before trump uh, for trump and who were going to march on the capitol were going to encounter large groups of left-wing counter protesters mm-hmm. and they had good reason to think this you know um it's kind of faded into history but there was a kind of a trial run of, of january 6th rally that took place in dc uh, and several other cities as well on December 12th of 2020, mm-hmm. and at that December 12th event, there were very violent clashes between um, left-wingers, you know, some of them are the groups that, that the right likes to label as Antifa, you know, mm-hmm. whether they are or not is, right. is too complicated to get into in this format, but, uh, um, but certainly, certainly the way it was described on the right, they were pumping up the Antifa threat, right, that they... Um, one thing, and I just learned this recently, um, and I was kind of shocked because I think it's really a major piece of this, is on December 5th, the day before the, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, excuse me, on January 5th, the mm-hmm. day before the insurrection, Trump made several public statements and proclamations specifically about Antifa. He uh, was tweeting, you know, Antifa, don't you dare come to D.C., and uh, he even issued a, a government proclamation saying that we're going to, step up our efforts to go after Antifa, which, when you think about it, he was only supposed to be president for two more weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and he's issuing this governmental order on Antifa in the last two weeks of what's supposed to be his lame duck uh, administration. Um, and here's an important thing that's come out of the January 6th committee, is that Mark Meadows, in an email, 
promise on January 5th that the National Guard's role was going to be to, quote, protect pro-Trump demonstrators. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and protect protect them from who? Not, not, I mean, not from the Capitol Police, presumably, but, but protect them from Antifa, those who they expected to show up. Do you think and they not only expected them to show up, but that, you know, especially with Trump's comments, that they were goading yeah. them, yeah. Goading, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, this, and the amazing thing about January 6th is that people on the left did not take the bait. In yep. fact, that was the that was the specific hashtag that some people used on Twitter. Uh, hashtag Don't take the bait, telling people this is a trap. Don't come. This mm-hmm. is a setup. Uh, you know, and they and they had help. They had help from some public officials like you know Mur- Muriel Bowser, the mayor of D.C., and mm-hmm. some other officials who were very public and saying, "Look, if you oppose Trump, this is not the day to come to Washington. You know, let these people do whatever they're going to do." And it worked. I mean, really, I mean, I honestly can't think of any evidence that any left-wing counter-protesters were anywhere, you know, within miles of the uh, of events, either at the Ellipse and then at the Capitol. So the, so the dog never barked? In other words, the, uh, yeah. the thing that they were waiting to use the, the, the troops on never came, so they never used the troops at all, essentially, right. for and, hours on end. And, and let me go back and say what it's about using the troops. Um, you know, one one of the bizarre things about that whole period between the November 3rd election and January 6th was Trump, you know, again, supposedly a lame duck who lost the election, right? Trump did this major overhaul of the Pentagon. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he fired the defense secretary, Esper, uh, and put in his own person, but then put in a whole team of, like, you know, under, under people. Um, and, he, you know, he really had put operational control, at least civilian operational control of the Pentagon in the hands of Trump loyalists. Now, mm-hmm. the one thing he wasn't able to do was he wasn't able to get rid of Mark Milley, right, the, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And, mm-hmm. you know, Milley, I think, is, is just such a critical figure in all this because he understood the threat of, uh, you know, Trump and his people at the Pentagon ordering the troops to clear the Capitol. You know, the, clearing the Capitol, you have to understand, I mean... This whole thing about whether Mike Pence should be evacuated from the Capitol and whether, you know, Nancy Pelosi and these other people should flee the Capitol because of the unrest. Well, they didn't flee the Capitol. And, you know, I think a lot of that was this fear that if they left the Capitol, that they weren't ever going to get back, mm-hmm. or, you know, or at least not in the, in the near future, you know, that... Um, so you don't you get know, the so sense that they were withholding the the troops, that Milley was withholding uh, troops, National Guard, anything like that, in order to allow this to happen? No, not certainly not on Milley's part. No, absolutely. I mean, Milley, you know, from everything I've read and heard about all of his actions during that period, was, you know, just very concerned about, you know, some type of coup-type mm-hmm. activity. And, again, another thing that, you know, Got, got attention, obviously, at the time, but with so much going on, kind of faded from people's memories, is, uh, you know, on January 3rd, the Sunday before the, um, uh, before the insurrection, there was this remarkable letter uh, that was published in the Washington Post, op-ed letter, from all 10 living secretaries of, of uh, former secretaries of defense. Yes. You know, in, including Dick Cheney, including Donald Rumsfeld, mm-hmm. and, you know, including, including the... Uh, the, the, the people, the Democrats who served under mm-hmm. Obama and Clinton and mm-hmm. all of them, um, uh, warning, you know, do not involve the, the military 
in anything having to do with the vote counting or the election. And obviously, you know, and I, you know, I, again, I don't know what Millie and the people who were on active duty, had, what role they may have played in encouraging this. But obviously, these people were hearing things, right? You know, they were hearing rumblings that something bad could happen mm-hmm. and, and that the military could be misused presumably around January 6th. I mean, this was published the Sunday before. So um, There were a lot of needles to be threaded, no doubt, that day in, in, in figuring out the right way to move forward, the right way to deploy troops. But i got to say, it's hard to avoid the conclusion. It's hard to avoid the racism issue, at least when it comes to law enforcement officials at the Capitol who did not seem to be, you know, alarmed or certainly even prepared that day, uh, you know, about the possibility of, oh, you know, white people would violently attack the Capitol. Uh, You know, I don't know if they purposely were standing down. I think there's evidence some of them were. But the idea that they didn't uh, foresee a threat from this particular crowd, um, I think, is telling. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I mean, the Trump mindset and, 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 you know, support for Trump basically is very prevalent throughout the throughout the white law enforcement community, right? So, mm-hmm. and I think, I, and there's actually some evidence. There's, um, you know, on the tapes of the uh, the emergency system of the Capitol Police from that day uh, at eight thirty in the morning, right before the rally began on the ellipse. Uh, uh, the guy, the operational head of the Capitol Police, went on there and said we're really concerned about anti-Trump people. Again, (laughs) the the Antifa, right? Right. So so it's basically the same thing as the the Pentagon worry. You know, there was was also an attitude within certain elements of the Capitol Police that that the danger here is from the left. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I mean, I mean, what, I mean, it it is, I mean, it's still not 100% easy to explain why you just had these like flimsy barricades and why mm-hmm. people weren't in, in riot gear you know you know i mean pos- i mean did they expect that if things got out of hand it would be antifa and that the national guard would be swooping in i i i, I don't know it's hard to that part we don't know i mean there's a, i mean even though we know so much more than we did 12 months ago but obviously there's so much more we still don't know and and you know and and, and part of the thing about the capitol police is it's, it's a really, uh, there's a real dichotomy, right? I mean, on one hand, we know that many of these officers acted in such a heroic fashion, right? And, you know, it's a, it's a very mm-hmm. diverse, you know, as you would expect in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. it's a very diverse force, and uh, um, you had a lot of people who were not, you know, the white, the white rural cop mm-hmm. mentality. You know, you had a lot of non-white officers, right? Uh, certainly some of the ones who acted most heroically, uh, on that day, um, uh, you know, were black and brown members of the Capitol Police Force. And so you had that element, and yet, clearly, at the same time, and, and this got a lot of attention in real time on January 6th, and then a couple days after, there was a lot of focus on the, the Capitol Police officers who didn't equip themselves very well that day, mm-hmm. who, you know, opened doors or seemed to be, you know, the, the one who took selfies with the demonstrators, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so you had both. So... I, I mean, that's one of those things I, I don't think it, it's very complicated. It's a complicated picture when it, when it comes to what the Capitol It is, and, 
people. Yeah, I, I mean, there is there is a lot to unwind, and I know people, including myself, you know, have been impatient about bringing accountability. Uh, Will Bunch, you and I were talking uh, briefly off air, uh, you know, that it was several years. Uh, really before the Watergate committee uh, got going and, 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 you know, began to get to the heart of the matter. Here we are only one year later. But, uh, Will Bunch, has there been, uh, w- would you say, and, and I want to tie this into Merrick Garland's uh, responses uh, shortly before airtime here, but has there been one year later more or less accountability for what happened that day than you might have expected one year later? That's a good question. I mean, I mean, certainly, excuse me, certainly, the, certainly, the number of participants in the in the insurrection, and in, when I say participants, obviously, I'm talking about the ground level forces. You know, mm-hmm. the people who breached the Capitol and the people who fought with police yep. officers. You know, I mean, obviously, the numbers of of people who've been charged criminally and the uh, um, has been impressive. It's been more than I probably would have predicted a year ago, Um, you know, and we've seen in real time the FBI and other agencies making an effort to really try, I mean, there really seems like they're trying to identify every single person who breached the Capitol and with a particular emphasis on any person who committed an act of violence Mm -hmm. that day. So so it's hard to find, it's hard to find fault with that, you know, and and look, and, and I don't think all these people need to be sent to prison for a long time. You know, the people who actually did, you know, surge in and, gape, you know, gape around their rotunda and walk around and walked out, you know, they don't they don't have to go to jail necessarily. The people who, you know, bashed the police officer with a fire extinguisher should be going to prison mm-hmm. like any person who assaults a police and, officer. And that, but, yeah. And, and that's something that, that Merrick Garland spoke to on uh, on Wednesday at the Department of Justice in his remarks was that they were working their way from the bottom up that you know that that people who who did assault police officers would be held more accountable than uh, those who simply walked into the building and he seemed yeah. to be suggesting that they were working their way up higher and higher and that we should, uh, you know, be patient. Well, a week or so ago on this program, well, uh, the great investigative blogger Marcy Wheeler, who I know you know, uh, she told our guest host that day, Nicole Sandler, that she thought that's exactly what Garland was doing, that he was working, you know, his way from the bottom up while the January 6th committee was working from the top down. And she cited the fact that the DOJ has, in the meantime, raided Rudy Giuliani's apartment in his office and his cell phone. They're reviewing those documents that the DOJ has taken action on the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, Alex Jones and his crew uh, and, as they you know, seem to be actually involved in the plans for January 6th with Donald Trump and, and, and that crew. Um, you know, so she says that this is sort of on target for where she would expect it to be and and sort of was critical of folks even like me who have been, uh, you know, impatient with Merrick Garland. Uh, your thoughts on on, on, on on that idea, and then I'll, I'll play a little bit from what uh, Garland had to say. Yeah, great. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I pretty much agree with what Marcy said. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean here's, here's the, the thing is... Um, if, if Garland is doing exactly this, you know, and, and he, he, he promised in his speech Wednesday that he was going to go after every level, mm-hmm. right? And I think those were the those were the three key words of the speech. The speech 
on every level. Well, here, let me let me just play that clip for you here, real quick. Uh, this was uh, Garland at the at the DOJ on Wednesday. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. There you go, uh, as, you were, as you were saying, Will. Yes, absolutely. And, and so, so, yeah, I think if, if Merrick Garland is doing an investigation that's truly from the bottom up and that once, you know, once that they've really gotten everything they can get out of the, uh, you know, like I said, the ground troops and the people like the Oath Keepers and, and the Proud Boys, you know, once, once they've really gotten all the evidence and have figured out who were the actual organizers, who were the plotters of this, you know, coup or this effort to disrupt Congress. And, I, and um, you know, I believe uh, uh, in, in another part of the speech that um, that you didn't play, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think Garland also put some added credibility to this idea that the disruption of Congress, which is in, on the books as a felony violation of, law, of the law, mm-hmm. that, you know, this, this, I, this, the idea that there was a plan to disrupt the operations of Congress mm-hmm. on January 6th, I think, I think is going to be the center of any, any effort that exists to go after Trump's inner circle and then, of course, the question of Trump himself, of himself right? So, um, you know, so we'll have to see. You know, obviously, for a year now, I think Garland and his Justice Department have been doing all the right things to tee this up. And so what we're going to find out in 22 is now that they've done that and now that it's teed up are they going to swing and you know hit a long drive or are they going to swing and miss you know that yeah. that's the part that's the part we don't know and and, and here's the thing and I, and I know we were talking about this before the show also is you know th- this is where i think that the house january 6th committee comes in to some degree because what their role in all of this and what they i think have been doing we've seen now in these last few weeks i think i think they're really doing a masterful job of this they are creating the, the climate of public outrage, mm-hmm. you know, because we, you know, we've never, this country has never indicted a president mm-hmm. before, sitting or sitting or post-presidential. Mm-hmm. And uh, even Richard Nixon wasn't indicted. You can argue about all the, all the presidents who came after, between Nixon and Trump who did dodgy things and whether they should have been prosecuted. But the bottom line is, you know, Andrew Johnson wasn't prosecuted, none of them, right? So, right. so this would be, if Merrick Garland's Justice Department is going to indict the top level for a conspiracy, including Donald Trump himself, they need a climate of as much public support as they can get for that. Yeah, and they have to get it right. They have to get yeah, it right. right. I mean, you don't, yeah. you know, kill the king unless you're sure you're going to kill the king. And that, you know, means laying a lot of groundwork and having every duck in a row. And, you know, when I when I heard uh, uh, Garland say that, you know, these people and that everyone who obstructed the proceedings would be held accountable for it. That's the same language that Liz Cheney has used. They all seem to be on that same page. Well, I got one more thought I want to get from you here uh, before we get out. And, And it's sort of related to the idea of public outrage and what we, you, me in the media and so forth can do to sort of help that. 
not to stoke public outrage, but to sort of help the public understand what went on. You know, I am not sure, and I've been talking about it for a while on this show, a year later, I'm not sure why the media seems to have so much trouble describing what Trump was doing for what it actually was, Will, which was an attempt to blatantly steal a presidential election. It is just that simple. There's a lot of other descriptions that we use to undermine the election, to overturn or question the results, uh, you know, a self-coup, thwart the will of the voters, prevent Biden from becoming president. They seem to be able to say, afraid to say, what Trump tried to do. He repeatedly tried to steal a presidential election. That is it, including throwing thousands of his supporters at the Capitol in a, you know, a last-ditch effort to do exactly that. If, if the situation was reversed, uh, you know, I promise you that Republicans would have no problem describing it that way as a president trying to steal an election. Why is that so difficult for Democrats and for folks uh, in, in the media? Because I think it would help the American people to understand what went on here very clearly and, and yes, uh, push the uh, public outrage forward. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, think, I think the Democrats and the media don't always have the same, exact same motivations. I mean, I think, you know, I think the, the media, speaking as a lifelong member of the media, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the timidity is, is baked in to some degree, and I, I think I think what you've seen in the last year, and not not just not just with the coverage of January sixth, but also with the coverage of the Biden presidency, which is entirely different kettle of fish. But but um, you know, I, I think you've seen you see this attitude of you know Trump was so bad and so dishonest and so corrupt, and you know the media <clears throat> went farther than it's gone with any other president in describing Trump as a liar and as as, mm-hmm. as, as, as you know corrupt or whatever. Not as far as you or I probably would have liked him gone, but but they, but they did go mm-hmm. somewhat farther. And, and now Trump's gone, and they they you know they're obsessed with proving that they could be tough on everybody, and that the, you know. And, and again, this this idea that fairness is a higher value than truth, you know, it just kind of permeates the whole generation of journalists. And I don't know. I guess I guess I got my booster shot, and I, I like to think I'm immune to it. Hopefully, but <laughs> but it, but it, but it's that but it's out there, right? So. So, uh, I feel like uh, that's yeah. what got us into this mess, this timidity, yeah, this, you know, too fair. Yeah. Uh, and and in this case, it's not even unfair. It's so clear. He was trying to steal the election. That's yeah, it. Yeah. It's that simple. And, you know, Brad, we have, I mean, we have him on tape, right? I mean, uh, the call to, to Georgia yes. and to Brad Raffensperger yes. when he says, when he says, I need you to find me the 11,780 11, votes or right. whatever the exact number was. I mean that's I mean that's stealing the election because yes. it's not like look you know I have this hundred page document and it document and it documents eleven thousand seven hundred eighty votes where there's actual right. evidence to think that they're suspicious. There was nothing like that. No. He's just saying he's just saying I want you to find. He, he didn't say he, I want you to investigate whether any votes are fraudulent and we'll see how many it is and if it's you know more or less than eleven thousand seven hundred eighty yeah. whatever I'll, you know. I'll accept the results. He, no, he yeah, he even, said, he even said. He even said. Uh, 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 he gave an exact number. He said that's one more than we need. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, it, so yeah, so it's, it's there. I mean, and and that's the thing. You know, I think you know. Getting back to what we were talking about a minute ago, I mean, to make a successful case of conspiracy against against a president of the United States, you need things like. 
tape recordings. You need things like documents. You know, I, I wrote I wrote over the weekend about the existence that Bernie Carrick revealed of this mm-hmm. draft document for Trump to uh, declare a national emergency and seize evidence of election fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and if, if if Trump was actually involved in, in either drafting or aware that his people were drafting this document for him, again, this is this is hard evidence. This is a physical document, just like the the tape from Georgia. These are these are pieces of incontrovertible evidence that that would show that Trump wanted to disrupt Congress on January sixth, which is a felony, and and that he was part of a conspiracy to do that. And uh, you know, I think if this is laid out there, and, and the other thing I think that's going on is I think I think there's an effort to create an understanding that look, there's going to be thirty percent of the public never going to go along with this that's going to say the witch hunt that mm-hmm. they're just out to get you know mm-hmm. you know the uh, elites are just out to get trump blah 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 but i think this is understanding that if you can make a case that's so strong that the other 70 percent of you know the, the the sane americans for want of a better term mm-hmm. widely understand that this was an illegal conspiracy then that justifies taking action you know and i think I, I think yeah, just, I, think, just, I think that awareness is important. I think it's, I think maybe we're getting there. I don't know. I don't well, know it justifies t- it justifies taking action, and it justifies taking your time, frankly, to make sure you get it right, no matter how frustrating yeah. it is to folks like me and Will Bunch, uh, who have to look at this every day. Uh, Will, I got to get out. My, my thanks, as always, but especially today, joining us, even with COVID. Uh, glad you're not here with me in the studio, however. Will Bunch <laughs> is the longtime national columnist for both the Philadelphia Inquirer and Philadelphia Daily News. You can and should sign up for his newsletter at inquirer.com slash bunch. And you can find him on the Twitters at Will underscore Bunch. Will, again, thank you. Happy New Year's. Really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, and uh, please get well soon, sir. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And, and Happy New Year. And I guess I guess, in a weird way, I should say Happy Anniversary, too, right? So, uh... <laughs> oh, man. There you go. Yep. Th- thank you, brother. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brad. Okay, we got to get out. Yes. Happy, happy anniversary to all of us. Uh, yeah, uh, got to go. Not happy as it may be. Not happy at all. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free, along with any other show we have ever done in all our million years of doing this at bradblog.com. Hey, while you're there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com/slash/donate. So we can continue doing it for another million more. You can drop me email. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>